Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me? In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Come again, Lord, to this watching and waiting world. Meet us now this night with the glory of your celestial brightness. And feed us, O good Lord, until we are full at this Christmas feast. Amen. I have a question for you on the eve of this Christmas feast. Are you hungry? This may be the wrong question on Christmas Eve in America. In the... On the contemporary cultural calendar, we've been in feasting season for some time already. Monstrous hams, steaming rib roasts, mold ciders, and endless festive tins of cookies and candy cane crumbles. For the adventurous and Dickensian among you, perhaps a Christmas goose. So in this gustatory sense, this culinary sense, you're probably not all that hungry. But of course, that's not quite the question that I mean. Here in the church, We've been fasting, at least fasting of a sort. We've been observing the quiet, dark season of Advent. So we've intentionally slowed. We've resisted, if imperfectly, the frantic consuming of the secular season. And we've sat and prayed and quietly reflected on the ways in which we remain, in Isaiah's words, the people who walk in darkness. We've remembered in Advent that we're still waiting on the return of our Lord Jesus Christ, and that until the great and terrible day of the Lord, when the Savior of the world sets all things to rights, all is not yet as it should be. And so we've sat with our yearning, our longing, our hunger. And so I ask here at Advent's end, whether you've had an especially reflective Advent or whether you're hearing the word now for the first time, are you hungry? Or perhaps I should put it differently because I know you're hungry, because I know you're human. And to be human is to hunger, to stand in need of the nourishment essential for life. So to bring it closer to home, let me ask instead, what are you hungry for? For what are you yearning? What do you long for with every fiber of your being? Do you long this night for an end to your suffering? Do you weep for relief from your mourning and grief? Do you keen this night for forgiveness from the sins that you've inflicted or from the relief for the relief of unyielding guilt? Do you crave tonight the solace of a single true friend? or the reconciliation and restoration of someone who seems lost to you? Or do you yearn for a sense of meaning, of purpose? Or have you perhaps tried for a long time to stoically deny your hunger, to call it not hunger but simply the way things are? Have you steeled your soul for so long against longing that you don't even know what it means to want anything anymore? Hunger comes in many forms. The short, sharp pain, the long, dull ache, a ravenous emptiness that fills the horizon of our life. I, I suspect there are, there are as many peculiar aches and shapes of hunger in this nave tonight as there are people, and more. 
But I also know, again, because this is a room full of human beings, that there is one hunger and one yearning that we all have in common. There is a hunger beneath all of our particular hungers. It is the deep human need which underlies every variety of unfulfilled longing. It's the pit beneath the pit in the stomach. And that's this. The central aching need to know God and to be known by Him. To love God and to be loved by Him. This is the knowledge and the love for which you were made. For which you were created. This is the knowledge and the love which every person has lost because of sin. Our souls are set at enmity with God. We've offended against His holy law. We've gravely offended against His majesty. We are all of us caught in webs of twisted desire and brutalizing power and the thrashing that we thrash with only entangles us deeper. And so, so many of us seal ourselves off and refuse to be fully known Because if God fully knew you, surely he would not love you. And if God cannot love us, then we cannot be loved. And there is a central hunger that will never be sated. But tonight, this Christmas Eve, is the night that we celebrate one of the central joys of the Christian faith, which is to say one of the central joys of reality. Tonight is the night we celebrate that our deepest ache and hunger has been met by God. Against it, God has set up his intervention, his invasion. Against our hunger, God has brought to us a feast because the God of all things who made the heavens and the earth has come near to us in the person of the Son to take on our hungering human nature and to satisfy us. And we can see that clearly tonight by looking at just two deceptively small details in Luke's account of this night the night before the Christmas feast. First, we need to go back a few months to to a day when Mary was first growing round with her miraculous child. She's visiting her relative Elizabeth, who's also miraculously pregnant. And Elizabeth in this visit is filled with the Holy Spirit, and she cries, Blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Mary, as the little baby John leaps in her womb at the presence of his enwombed Savior. Blessed is the fruit of thy womb, It's a little bit archaic, but we get the idea. The fruit of the womb refers, of course, to the child that Mary carries in her womb. And that child, that fruit of the womb, is blessed. He's been uniquely announced by the angel Gabriel, uniquely conceived by the overshadowing of the Holy Spirit. But we can hear in that blessing something deeper. Blessed is the fruit of thy womb. Blessed is the fruit of thy womb. Blessed fruit. Is there a cursed fruit? The Bible's account of where the whole creation first went wrong rather centrally features just such fruits. The fruit of the knowledge of the, uh, the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. The one fruit graciously forbidden in a whole garden world otherwise designed by God for human consumption. But our parents, Adam and Eve, were tempted And they snatched at God's proper place and they spurned God's command and they spurned God's love and we've been gobbling down cursed fruit ever since. The cursed fruit of our disobedience, 
our own snatching at pride of place, our refusal to receive the good gift of the world that God has given us on His terms, to tell Him that we can do it better. And what has it gotten us? A world of warfare and strife, a history of boundless pride and endless selfishness, a world of idolatry and murder and adultery and theft and lying and all their fractaling consequences. But now, even this night, is come a blessed fruit to take away the curse of the former fruit. And this blessed fruit, the fruit of Mary's womb, is also the seed of the woman. Do you remember the very first gospel glimmer in the Bible? It's there in Genesis 3, right after the fall happens. Genesis 3.15, where God is, is... delivering the curse against disobedience, but mixed into that curse, God slips a promise, and he turns to the serpent, the tempter, and he says to the the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. In that moment of curse, that moment of disobedience, that moment when everything goes wrong and from which everything continues to go wrong, God promises a Savior, one from among His people who will deliver His people from evil forever. And the angels come this night announcing just such a Savior. The seed of the woman, the promised seed, has become the blessed fruit of Mary, the new Eve. His life, this Savior's life, will bear the fruit of obedience The very obedience that we fail again and again to offer the God who's given us this whole world as a blessing. And at the moment of perfect ripeness, that blessed fruit, Jesus, dies on the tree of the cross. And his body, the fully human body of the fully divine Jesus, falls down into the earth like a seed. Who but God could have known the death of this Jesus, the seed of the woman, the fruit of Mary's womb, was the very means by which he would crush the head of the serpent. Because as fully man, Jesus dies the death, the death that haunts all of our living. And as fully God, death cannot hold him. And so the seed of this blessed fruit by going down into death sprouts new life and cracks open the tomb with the greening of imperishable growth. And now he sends his spirit into the world to bear much fruit. This child, born in Bethlehem, is the fulfillment of God's patient plan to reverse the fundamental curse of human life. That we have rebelled, disobedient children, snatching at power, trying to grasp divinity for ourselves, rather than obediently and joyfully receiving God's good and loving gifts, on God's good and loving terms. And that brings us to our second detail. This blessed fruit was born in Bethlehem. Bethlehem, the backwoods nowhere place whose name means what? The house of bread. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old. From ancient days. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. 
It's from this forgotten Bethlehem, this forgotten house of bread that Israel's king and ruler will arise. His birth will be the beginning of the gathering in of all God's people. But why is it important that the savior and ruler is born in the house of bread? Why not somewhere more significant or momentous? Why not Jerusalem, for instance? Why not Rome? Luke, alone among the gospel writers, gives us the homey details of the Christmas Eve night, the night of birth. He writes, and while they were there, the time came for Mary to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. It's a scene we've had warmly glowing in our imaginations for centuries. The holy family huddled around a weirdly luminous child, the ox and the ass gently lowing. We've seen it tonight, a glorious picture of it. It's a rightly lovely scene. But let's not lose the strange details. Jesus is wrapped in swaddling claws and laid in a manger. You know what a manger is, that word related to the French verb manger, to eat. The God who made the world and everything in it is laid in a feeding trough. In some strange sense, his birth seems to suggest that this miraculous child is meant to be consumed. And the child, Jesus, who is born this night is the same child who will grow up to speak these words, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. When the crowds heard this, they said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. The child Jesus, who in the first moments of his life is laid in a feeding trough, he's born in the house of bread because this is the bread of life. He's the same Son of God who created the whole world and who gave it to humanity as the gift of life. But again, from the garden, we've snatched at the gift and rejected the giver. We've claimed this world of perishing things for our own and rejected the God who is life and who gives us this world as life. And so that same creation that we've snatched away and disconnected from the life giver, it's become for us the food of death rather than the gift of life. But God has not left us to starve and to shrivel and to die. No, he came to offer himself as true food and true drink, food and drink which could nourish not only our failing and frail body, but also our soul. Let's go a step deeper. Jesus is the bread of life, not only because he was willing to be bread, but because he was willing to be broken bread. Just like a seed must die and go into the grounds to sprout new life, so bread must be broken if it's to be consumed and to give its nourishment. Now when we picture mangers, we have these pleasant straw-lined wooden contraptions in mind. But some of the ancient archaeological examples that we have from the first century are made of rough-hewn stone. It's entirely possible that the manger into which the newborn Jesus was laid looked rather like a stone coffin. Jesus is wrapped in swaddling cloths and laid in a manger. 
but he is born so that he might later be wrapped in a linen shroud and laid in a tomb. He is born to a virgin womb so that he can be laid in a virgin tomb, a tomb which Luke will later tell us no one had previously been laid in. This child was born to die. This bread was born to be broken. The bread of the life of the world was made to be broken. Now, no child is meant to die. No person is meant to die, except one. One child was born into this world with the specific intention of dying. This child, Jesus, who chose this, who laid aside his heavenly glory so that he might take up our suffering and the consequences of our sin, including our death, and bear them away. The death that Jesus died, that this child would die. He died for you. He came to die that the death of every lost child and the death of every man and the death of every woman who trusts in him would not be the end, would not be the final word, that their death and our death would become not the end, but just one more step one more step of following the Jesus who not only died, but who rose again. This is the meaning of Christmas, that God became man to feed our human hunger. That God lovingly took to himself mortal flesh so that he could die for us. And on the night that this child would be betrayed, he took up bread and he said, this bread is the body that I have for your sake. And I give it over to be broken for you. Jesus offers up his body to suffer the full wrath of God against sin, to bear the curse and consequence of your sin and mine. It's his death alone that can free us from the chains of eternal death. It's his death alone, his death on our behalf, that can make peace between God and man. Do you fear tonight that God does not want to know you? Consider this. The eternal Son of God took for himself a body just to see and know you even from the inside. Do you fear tonight that God does not love you? The eternal Son of God took for himself a mortal body just to give it for you in death and then to nourish you with resurrection and everlasting life. So I ask again, are you hungry tonight? Do you feel that deep yearning for all things to be made right? For the reconciliation of creation with its creator? Do you yearn for death to be no more? Then I invite you into the joy of this Christmas feast. God has prepared the table from the beginning of creation. God has prepared the table in the midst of his enemies. God has furnished the table with heavenly food, even his own body given for you. He's poured the wine of gladness, the blood of his new covenant. And most importantly, most wonderfully, most joyfully, most indescribably, God has joined us at the table. Unto us this night a son is born. Unto us a child is given. What are we to do with this child who's been given? We're to receive him as a gift. We receive him by faith by trust, we acknowledge him to be all those wonderful things that the angels proclaimed him to be, a savior, the Christ, the Lord. We trust 
that his death has become our death, and so his resurrected life can be your life. And for you who have already received this child by faith, who have been joined to him by baptism, you have the privilege and the great joy of receiving this given child who will tell us shortly, take, eat, this is my body given for you. Take, drink, this is my blood of the eternal covenant shed for you. Believe what he has done, beloved. Believe the good news of great joy and take and eat. This is the Lord who fills the hungry with good things. He offers you tonight the body that he took so that he might suffer along with you, the body that he took so that it might be broken for you, and he offers you tonight the blessed fruit of Mary's womb. He offers you tonight the broken bread of Bethlehem. He offers you himself. Come join the feast. Amen.